Mom, happy Mother's Day. I love you. I promise I'll call you after my nap this afternoon. <laughs> so, welcome to uh, part one of a new series that we're calling The Far From Perfect Family. And I want to give you a little bit of a snapshot um, into the life of a communicator in a room our size. Okay? Some of you come from or have a, what would, call, what would be called a traditional family. Some of you come from blended families. Uh, some of you are on your first marriage. Some of you are on your second marriage. Some of you aren't married. Some of you want to be married. Uh, some of you have kids. Some of you are raising kids. Some of you are raising your kids' kids. Uh, some of you have adopted. Some of you are fostering. Some of you want kids. Some of you want your kids to leave. Some of you are parenting adult children. Some of you are parenting your parents. The family dynamics represented in our church are really diverse, and that is challenging for a communicator to try and hit all of those family dynamics, so I'm not even going to try, okay? But here's what I want to do. I want to start with some common ground. There, there are things about, regardless of what your family looks like, regardless of, of, of how it's defined, I just want to start with a couple things that we all have in common. The first one is this. We didn't have any choice in the matter, right? Like, Nobody, was, nobody chose to be born, and nobody chose the family. You, you've heard you can pick your friends, you can't pick your family. And there are certain seasons in your life where you wish that was reversed, didn't you? You wished that you could pick your family, but none of us can do that. The other thing that we all have in common is this. No one you're related to is as smart as you are. <laughs> right? And again, you may not feel that right now, but at some point in your life, you thought, if everybody would just do what I say. We wouldn't have got kicked out of Golden Corral, right? And it's usually, you know, middle school, early high school, when we start to think this, like we want to sit everybody in our family down and just go down the line. You need to take a shower. You need to stop complaining about mom. You need to get a job. You need to stop changing job. Just go down the line and tell everybody, what they need to do because nobody is as smart as you are. And most of us mature out of that when we start our own families. And we realize, like in high school, I knew everything about family. I knew everything about marriage and parenting. I was, I was the greatest. Today, I'm praying a whole lot and just trying stuff and hoping it works. <laughs> right? <laughs> and then you come to Scripture. You come to the Bible and you look for good examples of how to do family. There aren't any. I've looked. Like, I know, in fact, the heroes of our faith, the really big narratives, like the story that we're going to track throughout this series, almost every single one of them had what we would consider dysfunction in their family. I mean, even, even Jesus' family. You remember this story? Mary, where's Jesus? I don't know. Like the original plot for Home Alone happened with the Son of God. <laughs> right? There, there's, there's this tension when you're trying, to, you're trying to follow Jesus as best as you can in family. And then you come to Scripture. There's this tension. Like you, you didn't have a perfect family growing up. You don't have a perfect family now. No matter how hard you try, you won't have a perfect family in the future. But the dynamics may be better in your family than other families, or the one that you came from, but there's, there's perfect, and then there's perfectly flawed. 
And all of us exist in the perfectly flawed character. Every family has history. Every family has baggage. But that doesn't mean God doesn't work in and through family. And I'm confident. I'm absolutely 100% confident that there are those with us today that are experiencing the best day in your family, your marriage, with your kids, with your spouse, with your parents. Maybe you've reconciled with siblings. You've never seen better days. You're, you're experiencing the blessing of God in your life through this thing that we call family. And I also realize there are those, there are those with us today that are experiencing heartbreak, brokenness, and I would even say despair. Despair is, I look into the future and I don't see it getting better. Family can be the greatest source of joy and blessing in our life. And it can also be the greatest source of pain and disappointment in our life. Family can be the place where we first experience love and security, where we first know that we belong somewhere. And it can also be the place of the deepest disappointment and pain and rejection, even, that we face. And I titled this series very, very carefully, The Far From Perfect Family, because my greatest desire, my greatest hope, like the thing that I've prayed over and over and over is, is for our families, is that we would be able to see that God doesn't reserve his blessing for perfect families. He works in and through far from perfect families. And maybe even more than that, that we would learn to trust him in the midst of things that feel hopeless, in situations, in relationships, in brokenness, even, even in despair, that even if you can't see it, even if you can't feel it, even if you don't see it getting better, that he might resurrect some hope in you. He might resurrect visions and dreams of hope for your family. I know that is a really high bar, but that's, that's my prayer for us. So as we jump in to this, um, we're going to track with what is arguably the most famous family from the Old Testament. The family starts with a guy named Abraham. Now, even if this is your first day to ever walk into the doors of a church, you know Abraham because Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. I'm actually one of them, and so are you. If you didn't grow up in church, you didn't know that, come find me after, I'll tell you, okay? Early on in the Bible... God speaks to Abraham, tells him he's going to make him into a great nation. He's going to bless him. He's going to make him a blessing. He's going to bless those who bless him. He's going to, he's going to, all peoples on earth will be blessed through him. There's a word that cups up over and over and over, right? This, this idea of blessing. And, and Abraham, okay, sounds wonderful, Lord. Do you want anything in return? And God says, yeah, actually, I want you to leave everything you know. I want you to leave your, your family. I want you to leave this place called Ur. This is his, his home where his family was, modern-day Persian Gulf area. He goes up to a place called Haran for a little bit, and then he eventually ends up in the land of promise, Canaan. By my math, it's about a 1,000-mile trek to go from Ur to Canaan. Abraham spends the majority of his life learning to trust this God that's called him to leave his home, his family, his wealth, his, his family's God, his protection, his provision. Trust me and follow me wherever I lead you. And Abraham actually does this. So that's the first generation. 
Abraham has a son. His name is Isaac. This is the second generation. We find this in Genesis 26, 12. Isaac planted crops in that land in the same year, reaped a hundredfold. That's a massive bumper crop. Now, why? Why did he get a, a hundredfold? Because the Lord blessed him. There it is again. This idea of blessing, that the blessing that God gave Abraham is being passed down to Isaac through the family line. Isaac has a wife. Her name is Rebecca. She's pregnant and she feels like there's a war going on inside of her. This was pre-ultrasound days. So she goes to an oracle and this oracle says she's going to have twins, Esau and Jacob. Esau beats Jacob by minutes, maybe even seconds. Jacob was literally born hanging onto Esau's foot. The name Jacob in Hebrew can actually mean heel or heel grabber or the one who comes after. So he's born seconds after his older brother. They're twins, but they're nothing alike. In appearance, we're told that Esau was a really hairy guy. Jacob was more smooth skin. Esau loved hunting and he was apparently pretty good at it. Jacob was more of a golfer. No, Jacob hung around the house. He was a homebody. Um, another difference between the boys, Esau was dad's favorite. Mom was more team Jacob. So there's a little bit of favoritism going on in the family. One day, Isaac tells Esau, his oldest, to go hunt something, kill it, clean it, cook it, make that wonderful dish I like. And then he's going to pass on the blessing that came from God to Abraham, to Isaac, to his firstborn son, Esau. And this hunting trip that Esau goes on will radically change the trajectory of this family's life. It actually radically transforms the trajectory of your life. But in the midst of all of this, there's a story of deceit, of just deception, of murderous rage family members who won't talk to each other for decades. This is the chosen family. Esau goes off into the wild with quiver and bow, kill it, clean it, cook it, bring it to dad, get the blessing. Mom overhears this. And remember, Jacob is mom's favorite. So she goes to Jacob and this is what she says. Genesis 27, eight. Now my son, listen carefully and do what I tell you. Go out to the flock and bring me two choice young goats so I can prepare some tasty food for your father just the way he likes. She knows Esau's recipe. You know why? She probably taught it to him. Then take it to your father to eat so that he may give you his blessing before he dies. So while Esau's gone, you'll, you'll sneak in there. He's blind, won't know it's you, and you'll get the blessing instead of Esau. And Jacob's going, Mom, it's an okay plan, but there's a couple problems with that. I don't sound like Esau, I don't smell like Esau, and I don't feel like Esau. So this blessing thing, it's kind of a hands-on thing, mom. How do, we, how do we get through that? That's what Jacob's response is. Jacob said to Rebecca, his mother, but my brother Esau is a hairy man while I have smooth skin. What if my father touches me? I would appear to be tricking him and would bring down a curse on myself rather than a blessing. The son is thinking more clearly than the mom, Right? All dad has to do is touch me, and this whole thing will backfire. Now, believe it or not, this story takes place, place 3,000 years ago, but archaeologists have actually found pictures of what Esau looked like <laughs> back in the day. <clears throat> Sorry. You get the point, right? Esau's really hairy. 
Jacob, not so much. So he's not really liking this plan that mom has come up with. But he does what his mom asks him to do. He goes out to the flock, kills a couple goats. Mom gets the stew ready. And then it says that mom, Rebecca, went into Esau's closet and got some of his best clothes. This was going to take care of the, the Esau aroma that needed to be in the tent. She takes um, the hair of the goats that have been killed to make this tasty meal, and she makes skin coverings in case dad gets close enough to touch Jacob. Their, their plan is to impersonate Esau. So he gets the blessing, and Esau doesn't. And off Jacob goes into Isaac's tent with the meal dressed in disguise. I, found, I find this part of the story fascinating. Listen to this interaction. He went to his father and said, my father. Yes, my son, he answered. Who is it? Because he's blind. He can't see. Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. Isaac asked his son, how did you find it so quickly, my son? He sees some issues. And I just want you to pay attention to how he says this next part. We're going to come back to it later in the series. Jacob says, the Lord, your God, gave me success. He lied. Not my God, your God. Then Isaac said to Jacob, come near so I can touch you, my son, to know whether you really are my son Esau or not. Jacob went close to his father Isaac, who touched him, and said, the voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. Again, a little confusion. He did not recognize him for his hands were hairy like those of his brother Esau. So he proceeded to bless him. God, I want to ask that you would bless my son. Are you really my son Esau? He asked. I am. He lied again. Then he said, my son, bring me some of your game to eat so that I may give you my blessing. Jacob brought it to him and he ate and he brought some wine and he drank. Then his father, then his father Isaac said to him, come here, my son, and kiss me. Now Jacob draws near. He, he bends over his dad as, as, he da as he does. His father takes in the Esau aroma, the smell of the great outdoors. And the first recording of a betrayal by a kiss. Isaac blesses him. It's irrevocable. The blessing has just flown, flown from God to Abraham, Abraham to Isaac. Isaac skips over the firstborn to Jacob. About that time, Esau was on his way back. He found it, he killed it, he cleaned it. He's about to cook it and bring it to dad, this tasty meal his father loves so much. Now, I wanna pause right here for a second. Just pay attention to something that's happening in the story. If you read it slowly and catch all the details, there's something that happens three, four, five, six times, almost like the author is screaming for us to pay attention to it. We're told numerous times about Isaac's love for this tasty food. Isaac asks Esau to make the meal he loves so much. Rebecca tells Jacob she knows how to make this tasty meal your dad loves so much. We're told about this tasty meal six times. Three times we see the phrase, just the way he likes it. Which leads me to believe that the most important thing going on in Isaac's life 
is lunch. <laughs> like you're seeing the, the very blessing and movement of God through this chosen family who's led by a man whose life centers around his appetite. Does that seem pathetic to anybody else? And before we throw stones, can I ask you, what does your life revolve around? Like everybody has some type of organizing factor for their life. And it can be all kinds of things. It can be the next adventure. It could be working for the weekend. It could be the next job, the next sale, the next vacation, earning money, saving money, spending money. It can be a girlfriend, a boyfriend, a spouse, a promotion, a house, a hobby, kids, grandkids, the desire to have kids. When you drill down real deep, how do you finish this sentence? My life revolves around. There's a term that we use today. They wouldn't have used it in Abraham and Isaac and Jacob's time, and it can be overused. And when powerful terms are overused, they become cliche. But I want us to think about this term for a minute. The term is a Christ-centered life. Yes, it can become cliche, but that doesn't mean it loses any of its power. By Christ-centered life, what we mean is at the center of our life is if there's a throne in your heart, the th on that throne is not an achievement or an appetite or another person or a possession. On that throne is Christ. And I would love to convince you that he belongs at the center of your life by virtue of two roles that he holds, creator and rescuer. The Cliff Notes version for followers of Jesus is that he deserves to be at the center of your life because he made you and he bought you. Just say, just, just repeat after me. He made me. He bought me. He made me and he bought me. When we put Christ in the center, we're putting him in that position, the position he deserves because he made me. He bought me. I think most of the work of following Jesus, at least maybe this is just for me, is making sure that Jesus doesn't hang out around the edges and fringes of my life, but he's actually in the middle, the center. Uh, Paul talks about working out your, your salvation with fear and trembling. I think most of that is a daily decision to make sure that Jesus is in the center and everything else is on the fringes. When we sing, I speak Jesus over my family, what does that look like? It looks like putting Jesus at the center of your life. So he is at the center of your family, intentionally or unintentionally, things get put in the center. And, and, and again, for me, it's a daily habit. It's a daily routine. It's a daily discipline to make sure he is in the center. Our life will revolve around something or someone. What is that for you? What is that for you? It becomes pretty clear that the center for Isaac is a craving, an appetite, and yes, we are supposed to read that as a tragedy. It's tragic. But the tragedy has only begun. Esau is taking lunch that he killed, he cleaned, he cooked to his dad. Look at verse 32. His father Isaac asked him, who are you? I'm your son, he answered, your firstborn Esau. 
Isaac trembled violently and said, who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? I ate it just before you came and I blessed him. And indeed, he will be blessed. I can't take those words back. The blessing's irrevocable. And, and just listen for the heartbreak in Esau's words. When Esau heard his father's words, he burst out with a loud and bitter cry and said to his father, bless me. Me too, my father. Isn't it interesting? <laughs> the majority of problems that we see in our country has to do with the father-son relationship. Bless me. It's his future. It's not just a blessing. It's his future being erased right before him. And what's his response? Well, this is the chosen family, so they forgive and forget, right? Let bygones be bygones. Let's just reconcile and move on. No, Esau is really good at killing stuff. And he's really mad at his brother. Those two things don't mix real well. Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. He said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. His mom and his brother weren't the only ones in the family that could scheme. And apparently he said this to himself, but his mom overheard. Moms overhear a lot. Right? So she finds her favorite son. Now then, my son, do what I say. Flee at once. That means go now to my brother Laban in where? Huh. That's where Abraham spent a season of his life. Stay with him for a while until your brother's fury subsides. Get out of Dodge as fast as you can. Go to your uncle's. And when your brother cools off a little bit, I'll send word and you can come home. <laughs> it's about a 500-mile trek from where they lived to Haran. And the irony here is that the homebody has to leave home. The one who hated hunting and camping now hunts and camps for 500 miles. The one who wanted to sleep in a tent every night is now sleeping in the dirt. We get the impression that he leaves with little more than a walking stick. He's now separated from his family's protection and provision. He eventually makes it to Haran and goes to work with his uncle Laban, who is a conniving manipulator. Little bit of justice there. It's a story we'll look at next week. But Jacob never gets word from his mom. As far as we know, Jacob never sees his mom again. Never sees his dad again. About 20 years later, he'll go home and he'll have to reconcile with his brother. That is a powerful story we'll get to a little bit later as well. And if you're Jacob, I just imagine him thinking, as he's making this trek, 500 miles, I didn't ask for any of this. <laughs> I didn't want this. I, 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 I didn't ask to be separated from my mom. I didn't ask to be separated from provision. I'm the homebody. I'm fleeing home. I'm the one who likes the tent. Now I'm sleeping in the dirt. I didn't ask for any of this. And he's right. He didn't. He didn't. He didn't choose that. But he was dealing with a reality that we all have to face at one point or another. We get to choose our behavior. But we don't get to choose the consequences of our behavior. 
We get to choose how we act, what we say, how we treat people, where we go, what we do with our money, what we do with our marriage, what we do with our sexuality. We get to choose whatever we want to do, but we don't get to choose the consequences. And if you're anything like me, there are times where I like to try and script out what's going to happen, right? Like I'll do this or I'll say that. And then they'll say this. Like I have these imaginary conversations it usually happens in the shower where I win every conversation. <laughs> like it's going to work out like this and I'm going to go there and I'm going to do this. And, and we, we, we have this script planned out. And there's no guarantee that it's actually going to work out like that. If you work 80 hours a week, not because you want to, but because you're trying to make a name for yourself, and you say, well, you know, I'm totally missing out on my kids' lives, but there's coming a day when we'll connect. That, that's not always your choice. When you attempt to connect with your adult children, they have the option of saying, no thanks. Because you can choose. You can choose your behavior. You can't choose the consequences of your behavior. High school students, junior high students, if you're lying your brains out about where you are, what you're doing, who you're doing it with, you can choose that behavior. But you do not get to choose how your parents respond when they find that out. And maybe even more, you don't get to choose how that kind of behavior gets entangled in your heart and you wake up one day realizing, I'm a liar. I don't want to be, but I am. You can choose your behavior. You don't get to choose the consequences of your behavior. You can say to yourself, well, <clears throat> I'm going to leave my wife. I'm going to leave my husband. I'm going to hook up with them. And kids are resilient. They'll bounce back. You can absolutely choose that behavior. But you don't get to choose how or if your kids bounce back. You, you don't get to choose the kind of confusion that arises in them or how long it sticks with them. You don't get to choose the resentment they carry with them. You can script your behavior. You don't get to script the fallout. So as Jacob makes this trek, I didn't choose this, he's right. He just chose the behavior that set it in motion. And that's where we'll pick up the story next week. Here's, here's what I want us to walk away with. There are stories in the Bible of God blessing people that are holy and honest and upright and good. This is not one of them. This is a story about God's gracious and persistent pursuit of perfectly flawed people. And we've only scratched the surface. We've got a long way to go. But God's activity, you see it. We can see it in the midst of this family's dysfunction and brokenness. For, for me, it's, it seems to be a picture. It seems to be a foreshadowing of grace. <laughs> and, and I find hope in that. And I'll just speak personally. I find hope in that from my far from perfect family. My family of origin my family now, the pastor's family, has, has conflict and grief and joy and sadness and anger and hopelessness, and there's a whole lot of grace in the middle of it. And the older I get, 
the, 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 the further my family gets, the more comfortable I am between the tension of wanting my family to be perfect and everything work out well and understanding that we're flawed. And so it's the challenge, and this is where we're going to go. The challenge, at least for those of us who are followers of Jesus. You're not a follower of Jesus. You, get to, you do whatever you want. I think you should do some of this stuff because it'll make your life better. But for those of us who are followers of Jesus, this is the challenge. From time to time, we will feel uncomfortable when we compare our flawed family dynamics to the standard Jesus calls us to. Some of you even felt that tension just a couple minutes ago when I listed a couple things. It's uncomfortable because I don't meet that standard. And the temptation will be to change the rules. Decide those verses don't count anymore. We'll do some theological gymnastics and, well, this is what it actually says. We'll ignore the standard in order to create a view of family that's comfortable for you. That's the temptation. And I'm just telling you, you can choose to do that. But you can't choose the consequences of that. You can't choose how that's going to work out. And, and while much of our society, even those who claim the name of Christ, lose focus or turn their back on the standard. What if Jesus followers in America? No. What if Jesus followers at Grace Point decided no. No. We're, we're not going to do that. Yes, we fall short. Yes, we don't always get it right. Our families are flawed. But we're not going to change the standard. We're not going to ignore the rules so we feel better about ourselves. We're going to live with the tension between our perfectly flawed families and the perfect standard Jesus set for us 2,000 years ago. And that's, that's what I want us to talk about for the next six weeks. Most of what we're going to talk about, walk away, apply it to your life as much as you can, and you're going to be able to do that immediately. Some of what we're going to talk about, you're going to walk away and go, I wish I would have heard this 20 years ago. I wish I would have heard this 10 years ago, Right? I have moments like that. But underlying all of this is a tension that you dare not resolve. It's a tension between your perfectly flawed family and the perfect standard given to us by Jesus. And if you resolve that tension, if you either say, well, my family's perfect. No, it's not. Or if you ignore that standard, I'm telling you, your far from perfect family loses. So, happy Mother's Day. <laughs> I hope you come back next week. We're going to look at the story of Jacob in Haran. Powerful, powerful story. And we'll, we'll, we'll take our next step in this series. Let me pray for you, and then we'll get out of here. Father in heaven, thank you for these stories, these narratives that just speak to truth. It's just true. We, we, we know it. So many of us experience these things, and, and human nature hasn't changed a whole lot. It looks a little bit different on the surface, but the heart 
still deceitful. And we still need a Savior. So wherever we are walking into this when it comes to our family dynamics, you have heard my prayers. And I ask through your spirit, through your word, through your people, that you would show us what it looks like to, to, to live in this tension that we all face. And, and, and more than anything, that we would, look, we, we would look to you to see what it looks like on a daily basis to put you and to keep you at the center of our own lives, of our relationships, of our families, of our futures, of our behavior, our thinking, that we would get to know you, that, we, that, that through your spirit you would lead us every single day to look, to act, to be more like you, to reflect you well. And I ask this, I pray this for my friends, pray this for your people, in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Have a wonderful week. You're dismissed.